books drunk. They want to be drunk. <laughs> I'm Brandy. I'm Emma. And our dear sweet mama Mariana is still away on a maternity break. We miss you, Mariana. I know, we do miss you. But this is still your book club with a twist, and we are still your happy hour girlfriends. Yeah. Last week, we continued our discussion and agreement on what a wild time it was to be living in Chicago while sipping on the Chicago cocktail. Got Mm. worked up discussing women's injustices, including our own. Talked about epic moments we've been a part of, and of course, learned more about this damn Ferris wheel and the twisted mind and homicides of Holmes. What a time to be alive. Seriously. (laughs) And Emma, help me live today. What are we drinking? Okay, I'm very excited about this introduction. (laughs) Today's cocktail makes me giggle because I love the play on words for this one that was our bartenders doing. Today's cocktail pairing is called My Fair Lady. (laughs) No, it doesn't come with the side of Audrey Hepburn and Rex Harrison, but wouldn't it be loverly if it did? (laughs) Obviously, we have the fair at play, but also the fair lady of this week's chapters is none other than Infanta Eulalia, the rain... Rain in Spain. Brandy, just you wait to try this one. I could have danced all night after trying it yesterday. Oh, dear God. Oh, here to share the recipe for the fair lady is our fair bartender, Ricardo. Ricardo. Ciao, Brandy. Welcome to the bar. Hello, hello. Are you ready for a little bit of a fair lady? Oh, I am so uh, ready. <laughs> she's strong. She's a strong cocktail. But she's sneaky, so yeah. I don't notice that she's strong, and I'm maybe going to have too good a time right now, and then okay. regret it later. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a, it's a variation on uh, uh, two different cocktails. I think that you, you can say that it's a variation on a mojito, but it's hop. Oh. And a variation on a margarita. So let's say that a twist on a margarita and a twist on a mojito made a, like a beautiful chill, a beautiful sun. Uh, oh, no wonder daughter. I like this, it so much. And this is my fair lady. This uh, is a drink Mariana's definitely going to want to try yeah. when she's back. Yeah. So for this cocktail, we're going to need an ounce of light rum, an ounce of lemon juice, an ounce of triple sec, and orange bitter. So mm. it's a very citrusy cocktail yeah we're gonna shake all our ingredients in in our continental or buster shaker and we're gonna strain into up into a chilled uh, martini or a coupe glass oh yeah and we're gonna garnish i would go personally with uh, an orange peel because i love the orange part of this cocktail yeah but if you're more into the citrusy like more citrusy part of the lemon you can garnish with an orange peel uh, a lemon peel and here you have my fair lady and ricardo if you don't have orange bitters is there anything like is to substitute with aromatic bitters is there any substitute for orange bitters not really you want those bitters you if if you're not into bitters at all i recommend just to squeeze the orange peel uh or maybe two orange peel in on top of the on top of the cocktail just to release the essential oils but i think that the orange bitter works pretty well with the triple sec the triple sec so it's an orange based liqueur that it's on the sweeter side usually uh, orange bitter gives you more than that little note. Ooh, I want uh, that. I want that. Yes, yeah. please. So a little <laughs> bit of uh, orange, but not the sweet orange note that the triple second give you. That makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Got it. All right. So, so it's a must. Alla tua salute, Brandy. Enjoy thank your you. lady. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. All right, woman. Cheers. Salute. Oh, oh my goodness. This is yummy. I feel like
like there's a little similarity of last week of like the Chicago cocktail with the oh, orange a little, a little bit, bit. A little bit. I think I like this a little better. This oh, feels a little bit more summery to me and less wintry. I just like really don't like rum. I'm not That's a huge fan me, of rum either, but I don't taste it as much in this. Like somehow in this drink, it doesn't bother me as much. I think because the flavor of the lemon is a little stronger for me. So the citrus like kind of overpowers the rum. Zing, zang, zongs. <laughs> Are you actually drinking though? Yeah. Oh, I never see you drink out of a cup like that. I was like, you're pulling oh, a Mariana. That's a Mariana. No, it's just do. because it's like one of those thermal. Because like if it it's cold. an up cocktail, yeah, it gets so hot. Some It gets like lukewarm by the end of the episode because I'm like holding it. Oh. So I put this in the freezer this morning. Oh, that's so nice. it was like oh, chilled. Oh, smart. Yeah. I yeah. was like, you're doing a Mariana thing. <laughs> no, bitch. I'm drinking. You're my fair lady. I'm being a naughty lady and drinking the My Fair Lady at 11 <laughs> o'clock in the fucking morning right now. <laughs> hey, at least it's Saturday. It's that's like true. having a mimosa, but a really that's, strong that's one. That's right. It's just like we're at brunch. Yeah. Talking about murder, you know. It's All happy right. hour. Let's get into this. Okay. This week, free of Emmeline, Holmes takes on a new asset. Minnie R. Williams, a woman from his past who has recently come to Chicago, was recently endowed with an inheritance, and has remained completely infatuated with Holmes ever since she met him. The two eventually marry in a sham ceremony and eventually move to a small apartment far from the murder castle when Minnie's jealousy hits its peak as young female visitors begin pouring into Holmes's hotel to visit the World's Fair. He eventually invites her skeptical sister Anna for a visit, whom he wins over immediately and invites to join he and Minnie on a trip abroad. Uh-oh. A trip that she'll never see as she ends up trapped in a dark chamber adjacent to his office, the life slowly draining from her as she gasps for air. The World's Fair, meanwhile, opens to great success. (laughs) It's not quite finished, but it's finished enough to astonish visitors with its grandeur and beauty. However, with the country facing economic hardship, ticket sales are at a ghastly low. The fair sees a slight bump on the 4th of July, and upon the late opening of Ferris's wheel... But with investors getting antsy and looking for ways to cut costs, Burnham worries that ruin could still lie ahead. All right, listen. Uh, Right off the bat, I need to vent about this. Okay. This damn World's Fair has a dishwasher on display in 1893. Okay, it is now 2021. I do not have a dishwasher in my New York City apartment. Something is horribly amiss. That is... What I took from this week's chapter. That's why you need to move to Brooklyn. Fuck Astoria. <laughs> we got dishwashers in Brooklyn. Dude, I read that and I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> I got so mad. <laughs> I mean, this. <laughs> These machines have been around a starting. long time, y'all. Where is mine? Mine is but still on the But you do have way. a view of the Empire State Building. <laughs> That's true. So, yeah. All right. All right. I guess. I mean, this week really opened my eyes to how massive this fucking fair is. Like, I feel yes. like fair is just not the right term for this. It's not grandeur. Mm-hmm. It's not grand enough. I agree with that. Yeah. This is like a city. Yeah. It's like a I mean, city it is. inside it's the city. The white city. <laughs> Hello, title yeah, of the it book. Is. It's massive in scale. Yeah, but also everything that they had as part of it. Mm-hmm. Like every detail. It's yeah, it not has its own fire fair. department. It has its own right. little like police department, the Colombian police or whatever they call them. Like, yeah, it's got, yeah, this it's, is got not its own like, water system. Like, <laughs> Yeah, when I hear fair, I think of like the um, like the state fair that we had at Virginia in the parking lot, you know, like this is not right. that. <laughs> When I think of a fair, I think of in my little town in Texas, we've got the Mosquito Festival. <laughs> what the fuck is that? <laughs> I mean, it's like it's like a little fair. They just call it the Mosquito Festival. <laughs> That's the worst name. Why do you have a lot of mosquitoes? Yeah, I mean, we're <laughs> like the part of Texas that we're on, you know, it's right on the Gulf Coast. Like, yeah, there's a lot of mosquitoes and we hate them and kill them, but apparently we decided but you to name worship a fair them after that. This fair, yeah, I don't know. I think that name would keep me away from that place. 
It's got they got good barbecue usually, so you know barbecue and mosquitoes. You, you trade what off. What more yeah. could you want? A fucking dishwasher. That's what's more. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the first things that really made me sad this week. So Minnie comes to Chicago, mm. and. She knows Holmes as Harry Gordon. She calls him Harry, and yet he asks her to call him by a different name when others are around. He asks her to refer to him as Doctor or Holmes or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I know this is a different time, and I know that women are just beginning to gain their independence and stuff, but I just could not help being like, this is a red flag. Red like this, flag, Even Minnie. back then, this must have been a red flag. He's asking you to call him a different name? What? The other thing around the situation that really bummed me out was the way that he describes her physically and how she's not like any of the other type of women. Mm, she's different. Yeah. And I don't want to say that that's a red flag that because she's not like she knows his dating past. But it's interesting because even his sister, her sister sort of is commenting on little things like that. Like, why would a man like this? be interested in you is kind of basically what she says. Well, and Holmes says, or what the book quotes of Holmes, what he most looked for and was so very adept at sensing was that alluring amalgam of isolation, weakness, and need. So yes, while it's a red flag, that is kind of, I guess, the embodiment of sweet little Minnie. Right. It makes sense that she wouldn't see that. The thing about Minnie, too, is, like, it seems like, she, you know, she's come into this inheritance. She's gotten this land down in Texas. It kind of seems like if she hadn't been the type of person that Holmes is looking for in a victim, like, it kind of sounds like she could have probably afforded to just, like, live on her own for maybe the rest of her days. Like, it sounded like she got quite a bit of money. You live on her own financially? Yeah, like it kind of oh, sounds well, sure. like she didn't need to be attached to anyone. It didn't. She didn't need to be taken yes. care of in in yes. that way. But I also feel like that's such a like present day mindset that us as independent women would say that. But back True. then, I think like you always wanted to be wed, and then you wanted to have kids, and you that's carry true. on the she family probably line. Wanted children. Yeah, I you're think right. like you. W- yeah, you're right. You definitely wanted marriage. So that doesn't necessarily surprise me, but it does suck knowing that she for sure could have been an independent, wealthy woman. And then he takes it all from her. Like she just signs it all over. Including her sister. I know. Horrifying. Absolutely horrifying. One thing that I kept wondering about, so this marriage to Minnie, it's a fake fake marriage, even though she doesn't know that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And he's still married to two other women at this time. He's still married to Clara. (laughs) who I think was his original wife, and he's still married to Murda, who also lives there in Chicago, though in a different house. And I kept wondering this week, how did those two women make it out of this situation alive? Uh Like, why weren't they... How did they not end up victims of this guy? Oh, what a great question. That's weird, right? He's got two wives somewhere. That's a good question. Maybe because that was at the beginning of everything, he yeah maybe he'll like keep them know. as like trophies. Maybe or like maybe it's convenient sometimes to have a wife, so he keeps her for that. Ew. Like, I yeah, I don't know. I just that kept nagging at me this week when he got married for the third time in the sham wedding. I was like, wait, yeah, there are still two other people hmm. who have, are just managed to get away somewhat unscathed. For this now. whole thing. For now. Yeah, that's true. We don't know. Did you also get the sense at the very last moment of this week's chapters, did he kill Minnie? Yeah, so I wondered about that too because what is he going to tell Minnie happened to her sister? Right? They're all about to go on well, this trip together. Well, I guess the together. same thing that he's telling the family of that other woman, uh, Emmeline. But – her, that family is, like, far away, right? Like, Minnie is right here in town. They're all about to take this trip together. Like, there's no way Minnie's going to believe Anne took off without her and just didn't say anything. Like, that's – I don't know that Minnie's going to buy that. And that made me wonder – I don't think they're ever going to go on this trip. And I wonder if Minnie's no. about to face the exact same death 
that her sister faced. Like, is he going to call her over to the murder castle, pull the same shit? Oh, my God. And and she's going to die seeing the footprint of the heel and be like, that was my sister's. Oh, oh no. God. Yeah, that whole death just, oh, that... The the thing that also kind of surprised me, I guess, is that he listens to Anne suffocating in this little chamber adjacent to his office. And he keeps toying with the idea of whether or not to reveal that he is this murderer or whether or not to let her keep thinking she just accidentally got locked in there and mm-hmm. he can't hear her. And I was I was a little bit surprised that well, and I guess we don't know whether or not he ever did reveal that to her. But I was a little bit surprised that he didn't need the pleasure of that. Like, need her to know, I did this to you. Well, we don't know, do we? I don't think so. Except there is mention of the fact that he does gas the chamber oh, right. to be sure she's dead before coming in. I don't know how Eric mm-hmm. Larson knows that. I can only assume maybe he's going from what Holmes wrote in his That's a really good point. I had a lot of those. I had a lot of moments where I was questioning very specific things or like what Anna Uh was thinking. And it's like, how would you know? Right. Yeah, right. I don't know. Yeah, I thought about that a lot this week. Like, where are you getting this information from? The only thing I can think of is that people in this time wrote letters you know, constantly. And so there must have been a lot of surviving material of that kind. Letters that she had written to family or to her sister. Well, there are a lot of notes at the back of the book that I haven't looked at yet, but I I guess that he has used a lot of references to create this, so that would... Right. I mean, you can't fictionalize. You can't really, like, guess. Yeah. Yeah. And you can, but you have to say that... It's a guess. Yeah. Well, I already have a question for you because it's related to our discussion. I'm just sneaking in early. Get it. Well, I don't think I need to elaborate on how I came up with this question. And I also just gave it away by saying, this is what we're talking about right now. (laughs) But in light of Holmes and his murder castle, I wanted to know if you've ever been in a position where you felt unsafe or your gut was telling you something was off, but you stayed anyway or went through with whatever the situation was. Oh, and man. And were you right if you did or didn't? So there have definitely been a couple of moments where where I felt uneasy about something. And I couldn't tell. I didn't know why. There was one instance where I was dating somebody and we were going back to his apartment. And right before walking in, I had been to the apartment before. Not a lot, maybe like once or twice, but I had been there. And right before walking in, like, I definitely just kind of hesitated for a minute. And he picked up on it instantly. And he was like, there's something weird with you in this apartment. He's like, I don't know what it is, but, like, there's something weird. And I couldn't put my finger on what it was, but he was right. There was – I had a weird feeling about the place. And I I did go in anyway because I trusted him and obviously nothing happened. Oh, okay. But there was one time that I have mentioned on this podcast before, actually – uh, it was very early on when I very first moved to New York and I saw this ad in backstage oh, for a Reiki right. massage place. And I ended up, they said that they were willing to train people. I was super naive and kind of didn't realize what was going on. Luckily, my boyfriend at the time ended up going with me. It was in this very, it was in the financial district in this very legit building that had like doctor's right. offices. It felt legit. But in, and my boyfriend waited for me downstairs in the lobby Immediately upon walking in this place, I thought, something's not right here. But, you know, as a woman, a lot of times, I I think, at least for me, Mm -hmm. you tell yourself to ignore that. You don't want to be seen as – you don't want to be weird about a situation if there's not something going on because then you're a crazy female. So there was definitely something weird. I ended up going in for the interview. There was a lot of weird – shit that happened in this interview that very easily could have gone badly and might have been about to go badly. But thank God, my boyfriend was also feeling really weird about the situation, ended up coming upstairs. And at a really kind of scary moment for me, actually, he starts pounding on the door mm. that uh, to the office that I'm in. 
I realize the door is locked. He cannot get into this room. And I'm in here alone with this man who is currently on the phone, but he was interviewing me. And hadn't he been telling you to disrobe? Yeah, he had been telling me that I should take my clothes off so that he could show me, give me just a little demonstration of some of the, like, uh, Reiki massage techniques or whatever. And I was literally sitting there. It was, he tells me to disrobe. He goes and gets on the phone. I'm sitting there trying to figure out what I'm about to do because I'm scared. Like, I'm, I'm scared. I obviously don't want to do this. And I don't know how to get myself out of the situation. And as he's on the phone, he keeps kind of turning over to me and being like, you know, go ahead, go ahead and start, you know, taking your clothes off now, kind of in a very casual, like, let's just be expedient about this kind of way, like very, Mm -hmm. just very casual, like, go ahead, just do this. And at that moment, I look over, this was right before my boyfriend started knocking, I look over to this book that's laying open. And one of the, I guess, massage techniques is showing you how to massage a penis. No. Yeah, to quote unquote relax it. And alarm bells are going off. I don't know what to do. And that's the exact moment that my boyfriend starts pounding on this door. I realize it's locked. I'm like, oh my God. And that kind of just snaps me out of it. Mm -hmm. And I go, I open the door and we get the fuck out of there. And as we're walking out, this gentleman's walking in and he's like in a robe and he's super happy to be there. And I'm hearing some very weird sounds from some of the other rooms. Uh, and we, we get out of there and I just, yeah, and I realize what that situation probably was about to be. It's pretty scary. That story is so horrifying. And I still can't believe your boyfriend, like he also had that gut feeling and he came up and, and saved the situation. And, yeah, I truly don't know what would have happened because I was just, you know, sometimes people in these situations describe just feeling frozen. Mm-hmm. I felt frozen mm-hmm. and just completely unable to think of what to what to do. And I was scared enough that I don't know what I would have done for fear of, what saying no might mean. Well, what about you? Yeah, I mean, obviously there have been several cases, positions where I felt, uh, where my gut was definitely like, this is not right. And similarly to you, I kind of was in these moments feeling like, I don't know if I should speak up, if I express that I'm not feeling okay or just go through with it. And this is actually not physical or sexually related, the one that I'm thinking of now. But there was a time when I was in high school when my best friend and I had this mutual guy friend and he wanted to take us. So like the James River in Richmond is one of the, um, it's like a, you know, like a local hangout spot. I mean, it's a beautiful river. It's like a beautiful destination in Richmond, but it's also like where the, you know, the teenagers go to like smoke weed and drink and like hang out on the rocks. So he was like, I want to take you to this cool spot by the James River. And we were like, okay, cool. And we parked the car in this shady parking lot where there were like no other cars around. And it wasn't the river that he wanted to take us to, but it was these elevated train tracks. So there's a train track that runs along the, the James. Oh, my God. And he knew a way to climb up and get up on the track. And it felt scary already, just kind of like walking along that. And then I I asked him, but this is a working train track, right? Like, yeah, there like what are, happens if a train It's an comes. active train. Exactly. Like this is active. A train could come and like then what are you supposed to do? Because there's no way – once you're walking along the track, you can't – there's nowhere to – there's no like elevated platform to walk off on. Like there's no escape unless you go down the way that you came up. So I was – terrified because I was like what if we don't hear that the train is coming in time you know and he was like stop being such a worry wart like it's fine I do this all the time and I didn't want to you know be this scaredy cat teenage girl so I was like okay yeah like I trust you yeah like I'm cool I'm cool and was your friend doing the same thing she was freaking out and her freak out made me even more nervous and so finally I was like we got to go. And I just said, like, never again am I going to do something that I feel. Yeah. Oh, my God. It would have been terrifying <laughs> if a train had come. I mean, you could have died a horrible, Absolutely. horrific death. 
mm-hmm. because I was too scared to say that I was scared and just yeah. listen to my gut and say that I wanted out. It's such a weird thing because sometimes I find myself in much lower pressure situations ignoring my gut and it's Mm -hmm. not always out of fear sometimes it's also just out of like oh well if this person is saying that they feel fine about it like maybe I should just trust their judgment Mm -hmm. over mine and I don't know why I'm so ready I should say I was so ready to do that in the past just take somebody else's judgment over my own Mm -hmm. but I, I have found that sometimes I've done that and then that person is completely fucking wrong and it's like well why did you listen to them? It didn't make any sense what they were saying. They were just confident (laughs) about it. Do you think it's just that fear of looking dumb or looking wrong or being like a quote-unquote scaredy cat? I think it's like a little bit, maybe a little bit of all of those things, but I think it's also just wanting to be an agreeable person. Like, Mm. you know, you don't want to be the contrarian. Uh Uh-huh. You know, waving your finger, being like, "I don't think this is a good idea." Right. So you want to be you want to be somebody who goes along. Yeah. Yeah, and then you find yourself in a terrible situation. But do, are you possibly. better about that now? Yeah, or do you I find think I am. Do you still do it. I mean, I think I do still do it, but like in in situations where it's not going to be a big deal, you mm-hmm. know what I mean. But if it were a situation now where like somebody's life could be on the line or something like that like that's just it's just not gonna happen yeah yeah because there's just no there's no fucking reason to do that it's just not worth it it's not worth it and maybe that's something that you just like have to learn with age and experience or something but it reminds me of that same quote that i brought up what two weeks ago or last week from um the girl with the dragon tattoo the villain who's like people do things they know they shouldn't do and it's because they don't want to be rude, and then they end up in terrible situations. Well, and I found like I'm battling myself a lot with that nowadays with COVID. Like I'll get invited yes. to something indoors. Yes. And I'm like, it does sound really fun, and I'm I'm sure it would be okay. I'm but, vaccinated, so. Right. Yeah. But if we're not wearing masks... Then it's like in my gut, I'm like, I don't feel like that's a good idea, but it's yeah. hard to say no. But I actually I have I am proud of myself at how I have been able to put my foot down about that and be like, I'm just not doing that because again, right. it's just not worth it. It's just not smart. It's not yeah. worth it. Yeah, absolutely. For a couple hours of fun. Right. And then fear for the next five days that you might develop symptoms or that somebody there might have developed mm-hmm. symptoms. Yeah, I feel you. That's a really good example. Okay, back to the book. (laughs) Well, Brandy, your gut was right (laughs) about this Prendergast. You (gasps) called that. You were like, there's something going on here. And I still don't know exactly where it's going. Yeah. But this week did make it a lot more clear that there's something. Yeah, there's something coming with this poor guy. Mm Mm-hmm. I I can't help feeling a little bad for him because he does just feel he's definitely got some mental health issues going on. Clearly, I didn't pick up on that. Well, he's sending postcards to people he doesn't know as if they're friends. The the lines in the postcards often are completely random and make no sense. They don't even put together a cohesive message. You know, he'll. Mm. He starts off with one thing that he's saying and then, you know, pivots into Jesus and God and all this. Like, he doesn't seem like someone who is in his right mind to me. And maybe this situation is exacerbating that. And I also, it wasn't clear for me when he says that he was hoping that Harrison was elected so that he would gain salvation. Yeah. I wasn't clear of what that salvation was. I mean, I I took it to be salvation from his job, which he seems to fucking hate. Mm. He seems to hate that job. He hates the newsboys that work for him. It sounds like they taunt him and disrespect him. And I think also he's got this sort of sense of grandeur about what his life is supposed to be and who he is supposed to be in the world. Mm-hmm. And I think he sees his appointment to this new post in Harrison's cabinet as his salvation from 
not being seen. You know what I mean? I, I think he sense. feels like now people will understand who I've been all along. I will be a public figure. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Even though I don't, I don't know that Harrison ever promised him this. I, I don't know that. I don't no, know if I have he a feeling has made this up in his brain. Yeah. You know, it doesn't sound like he even really knows Harrison at all. <laughs> but <laughs> it just is been interesting. working on a campaign. But like th- this storyline must be important because of how much it was brought up this week. Yeah, it's definitely headed some somewhere. Mm-hmm. And the only thing I can think of is that he's going to attempt to assassinate Harrison or he's going to assassinate Harrison. Oh, shit. That's the only thing that makes sense to me because he's so fixated on this person and he's so angry about not having been acknowledged. It seems to me like Burnham must have pissed off God or something (laughs) at some point because now in the days leading up to the fair, there's this torrential downpour (laughs) of like biblical proportions Mm. that strikes Chicago And then there's this massive financial collapse happening across the nation that keeps people from coming to the fair. And then, you know, after the fair finally opens, there's that fire that is very briefly mentioned, but felt ominous and feels like it's going to come back at some point. This this fire that happened that Burnham never hears about for whatever reason. He's never told about. Um, It just feels like. I don't know. It feels like the fair is doomed or something. Yeah. Like poor Burnham is like this central figure trying to hold everything together. And it's like some divine force is just like throwing shit at him being like, this is never going to yeah. happen. This never should have happened in <laughs> right, the first never place. Should have been. <laughs> That's so sad. It's so sad. And even like all the banks are going in debt. Like they're all right. everyone that's killing themselves over the economy oh and my the God, numbers. Yes. And I mean, I just can imagine how anxiety inducing that would be to have to follow so carefully the numbers of people that are coming in and realizing right. that it's failing. And you've put all that work and all that money and all of that promise to the people about what this is and then it's not delivering. Yeah. I know if that were me, I would I would have a really tough time with that. Yeah. Well, and it must also just be so scary that now the fair's investors are like, well, we need our money back. And so they want to assign this team of people to come in to basically cut costs. And Burnham is just seeing this as like almost the premature end of the fair because he knows that it's never then going to become what he meant it to be in his eyes it needs more money. It needs more investment mm-hmm. in order to keep bringing people in under the circumstances. Or to so raise that the also ticket prices, really which me. I thought was like, that's a good... But, but I mean, no one has the money. In a time, exactly. Nobody has the money to do it. Um, yeah. I don't know. That, that, really broke, that really broke my heart. Uh, the other thing that kind of like was highlighted for me this week was this sense of this sense of Chicago feeling lesser than and trying to prove itself with the fair. Like, mm-hmm. clearly, the you know, the New York elite are, like, snootily looking down their noses at what Chicago can provide in terms of, you know, finery and good food and culture and all this stuff. There seems to be this, like, snarky back and forth between publications of the time in Chicago and New York sort of, like, throwing jabs at each other over what's going on. And then poor Burnham also, you know, it's mentioned a couple of times now that he wasn't admitted into Harvard or to Yale when he applied. And that seems to be something that just, like hurts him and like he never feels good enough and this fair seems like almost his chance to prove his worth even though he's considered like the best architect in Chicago. I know he already has such a name for himself so I feel like but I guess is that the fear that if this fair failed so badly that he wouldn't work after this? I Because I have a hard time imagining. Or that it could just mar his um, like legacy and I'm sure also there does there has been mention at least once of him feeling a little bit prickly about people saying that Root was kind of the genius behind the fair and like how without Root, they're not going to be able to pull this off. And Burnham has a little bit of jealousy about that thinking like, no, he wasn't doing anything. This is all 
me. Yeah. And I'm sure he's worried that if it fails, people are going to say, like, well, if Root had been here, this wouldn't have happened. That's so sad. I forgot about Root already. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) I really liked this quote. Night is the magician of the fair. Mm. Because of how it was illuminated at nighttime with the light. Yeah. That just makes it that kind of, I felt like it was like Disney World in a sense. You know, like Disney World by day is like chaotic and crazy and just like a bunch of kids running around and you're like, and then at nighttime, like Cinderella's castle is lit up and then all of a sudden you're like, oh my God, where am I in this stunning location? Yeah. I love that you brought that up because I had been wondering where the magic in the title was going to come from. Uh, yeah, this week it's mentioned that, you know, the light, obviously that must have seemed magical to people at the time. But then this week it's also mentioned that the magic of the fair happened in the connections that were made Mm. there. And I did find myself just kind of marveling at how many giants of history are like wandering throughout this story. There's Susan B. Anthony interacting with Buffalo Bill. Annie Oakley's walking around the place. Love her. We find out that Elias Disney, Walt's dad, worked on the fair. Oh, right. Um, Mark Twain was supposed to offend, uh, to attend, but then doesn't quite make it. Einstein, too. Y- yes. Crazy. Like, yeah. just like the how number. cool thinking about them there. How cool to think about just regular people walking alongside these giants of their time and, like, even of our time, because, like, we know who these people were. And then on top of that, too, all of these products that come into being at this time, Juicy Fruit, Pabst Blue Ribbon, we read about, is is born during the fair, Shredded Wheat Cereal, like all of these, it just feels like a magical time of like booming and change, women are, you know, getting more liberated. It just feels like anything can happen. In in a city that is chaotic and falling apart yes (laughs) yeah yeah i mean yeah it feels frenetic and crazy and just like it feels like possibility for change Hmm. that's a good way to put it i think it is yeah and i just i can't let this episode go by without touching on this fucking columbia cookbook by the female author Hollingsworth <laughs> that was billed as a guide for helping modern young housewives create a peaceful, optimistic, and sanitary household. Oh, yes. That, I hope you took some tips, Emma. Oh, yes. I know now that if I want to vomit, I'll just inject tobacco through my anus. Up your butt. <laughs> like, Who knew? Or drink strong coffee to get my breath rid of onions. Absolutely. That'll cure you quick. Yuck. <laughs> I also, I thought of you and I was delighted this week because we actually find out this week what's in a woman's building. You know, last week we were puzzling over what the heck is in a woman's building. And this week there's this great quote where someone asks the guards where the quote unquote artificial human beings are. And someone else (laughs) chimes in saying that they're over in the woman's building. Just ask for the lady managers. So there you go. Now we know what's in there, Emma. (laughs) Not just gloves, it turns out. No, far more. The other thing I really loved was the first trip of the Ferris wheel with Ferris's wife in the car and how gutsy. I mean, I would have been scared to shit to do that. And she even stood up like on the seat. I just loved how supportive and excited. She was so excited. Yeah. I thought, what a cool woman. Okay. I still can't get over the fact that this damn Ferris wheel is the showstopper for the World's Fair. Mm-hmm. And since the entire country up to this point seems to be waiting for Ferris to finish building the damn thing, I want to play a little game called The Top 10 Showstoppers H.H. Holmes Pitched for the World's Fair. It's yes. a rapid fire drink after every answer, not just your own. Uh. List of all the silly showstoppers that Holmes might have pitched to Burnham with some sinister intentions. So I'll start us out with number 10 and then you jump right in with number nine, Miss Emma. Okay, I'm so excited. 
All right, number 10, an elaborate outdoor garden maze in which every possible outcome leads to a door that goes nowhere except one that opens up into a room, that opens up to a closet, that opens up to a vault, that opens up to a crawl space that leads you to the very smallest room, which is your own coffin. <laughs> Drink. Drink. <laughs> number nine. A carnival game where they hold a rag soaked in chloroform over your face and you see how long you can go without passing out. Whoever beats the record wins a prize and whomever passes out in under five seconds wins nothing except for maybe their life. Oh no. <laughs> okay, number eight. It's a dark room that you walk into to see an illuminated map of the constellations. Those who can see the stars enjoy a good show. Those who, for whatever reason, can't see them are probably witches and are dealt with immediately. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> Number seven. A room where they have skulls of skeletons. Skeleton skulls? Skeleton skulls lined up in jars in a beautiful presentation, and you have oh to guess God. which skeleton skull matches that of your own. And if oh you have God. no idea, they'll offer to help you find out by no. stepping into this magic machine. <laughs> Drink. Okay, number six. A skyscraper 25 stories tall, as tall as the tallest of the day, with an elevator that takes you to an observatory deck at the top and will take you to the exhibits on any of the floors below, except for the 13th floor. That one's empty for superstitious reasons. <laughs> number five. A ride that we would all recognize today is the Tower of Terror that's billed as not for the faint of heart, but offers a huge prize at the end if you complete it in time. Little do the attendees know that the only other possibility of not completing it is not making it out of there alive. <laughs> oh, no. Number four, it's a giant rainbow that runs over the fair. You climb up one side and slide down the other where a giant pot of ball pit gold waits to soften your fall. The trapdoor underneath the ball pit is purely for maintenance purposes. Holmes promises. <laughs> Yay! Number three. A game where the contestants are blindfolded and have to guess what they're eating. If they make it through all five, they win $1,000, which was a lot of money back then. Yeah, it's a lot of money now. Yeah. But each item was something found on the street or in the water. No, 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 no. Think drowned nope. cat hair? Nope. <laughs> <Gross>. <laughs> Take a sip. Yummy. Number two, it's a giant catapult that launches fairgoers from one side of the fair to the other in mere seconds with astonishing accuracy. A small percentage of women, I mean people, will end up in an unexpected location where they'll surely be escorted to safety. No. <laughs> Drink. Number one. Build as being a luxury spa. The guests are escorted into an ornately decorated but serene oasis resembling a spa, where they think they will receive exotic treatments, such as a silk bath or a massage with these special bugs that rid your blood of toxins. Oh but each treatment is really something designed to kill you, like a oh, bath no. that drowns you or bugs that actually leach all the blood from your body. Whoa. Drink. Drink. <laughs> well, that sounds like a fair wow. I don't want to go to, like the Mosquito Fair. <laughs> hey, that could be another one. Mosquitoes that just, you know, suck all the blood out of you. It would be Honestly, a very efficient way to deal with, you know, kind of a messy issue, probably. I think I truly could die from mosquitoes. Like, they fucking love me. They're the worst. They yeah. are the worst. I completely concur. <laughs> I kind of couldn't help wondering... This is another semi-prediction I'm going to make. Uh, I couldn't help wondering what this guy Bloom is going to go on to do after the fair is over with. He seems so industrious and so clever. He manages to open his Algerian village well before the fair opens. He starts getting business for it immediately. And since the fair wanted nothing to do with him, he gets to keep all the profits and then the fact that he wrote that song that we typically associate with the cobra emerging from the basket, yeah. it seems like he just writes it on a whim. Like, he just seems like such he a go-getter. 
Yeah, he should have copyrighted it. He, you know, he'd still be Lame. his family would still be making millions. But I, I feel like this guy is gonna, you know, we're gonna find out that he's like the next president or something. You know what I mean? Like I feel like he's gonna end up being somebody huge, possibly. Because why else well, would we be following him? Maybe when Prendergast assassinates Harrison, Blue Whoa. will then run for mayor. That's interesting. <laughs> That's interesting. Because I feel like you're on to something here with the Prendergast story. So I'm going to just we're just going to hang piggyback. on to your. Yeah, <laughs> I'm tailing off you. You're She's usually reaching right about these on to me. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> Could have done without the sound effect. Could have done without that. <laughs> Speaking of characters that I have questions about their future oh. with the fair. I really loved getting to hear more about Buffalo Bill, who Ricardo knows and loves as the cowboy that he is. But <laughs> I know Buffalo Bill from the musical Annie Get Your Gun, oh. which I loved as a kid. Yeah. Who actually, I feel like when I was reading about Annie Oakley and like what a sharpshooter she was, I was like, that could be Brandy one day. <laughs> oh, like, thank you. I see oh. threads of Annie Oakley and Brandy. <laughs> Thanks. Oh, I'm blushing. But I wonder, like, I just loved what he was doing for the fair and, and the joy yeah. that he brought into it. And I wonder if kind of maybe that yeah. might be the end of his story with this or if he's going to keep coming back. But that was fun learning more about him because he was a character yeah. that I kind of knew about as a kid. Right. Well, and we like briefly touched on it earlier, but that moment between him and Susan B. Anthony oh, was yeah. so unexpected. I know. And beautiful. And the way Eric Larson frames it as, like, the old, like, kind of touching base with this new school of thought of, like, you know, a suffragette, the women's movement. Mm -hmm. And here's, like, this tough guy, like, coming in and, you know, kind of supporting in this moment. Again, it It was, was like, the magic of the fair. Yeah. There we go. Bring the magic back. And both finding this way to unite, basically over hating the lady managers, it sounds like. (laughs) It sounds like they were both just, like, fuck those lady managers. Wait, Emma. Yeah? Do you know where you are right now? In my fake booth? Welcome to Deep Dive. Oh! You didn't even see it coming, girl. I didn't! (laughs) You magician. So this Deep Dive, I'm recommending the docuseries American Ripper, which was actually recommended to us by our awesome listener, Adrian. Yes! We love you, Adrian! It's an eight-episode series following Jeff Mudgett, which is H.H. H. Holmes's great-great-grandson, and an ex-CIA analyst named Amaryllis Fox as they try to uncover once and for all whether Holmes could have been Jack the Ripper, which is something we touched on yeah. a little bit last week, Emma. So I'm only a couple of episodes in, but there's already some pretty interesting details and coincidences that they're uncovering that have not been covered in Devil in the White City. So I highly recommend giving it a shot. Once again, that's American Ripper. You can currently watch it on the History Channel, and I will put that in our show notes. Thanks for the killer recommendation, Adrian. Oh, God. <laughs> That does sound really good, though. I'm pissed that you've already started watching it because now I know that you know things about Holmes that I don't know. But now I can't wait to go and catch up. But I will say, like, you know, I was expecting there to be more overlap about the World's Fair, you know, in the in the docuseries. And so far, I think I'm on episode four. So far, they've they've only started to touch on the World's Fair in episode four. So it goes into his childhood, some mysterious things that happened there. It goes into some mysterious gap in time when he wasn't in Chicago, but where was he? Could he have been in London? (gasps) It's... No, say no more. I won't say any more. I will just say it's, it's been pretty riveting thus far. So... Highly recommend. And Adrian, thanks for reaching out about that. Yeah. All right. Well, you've got a deep dive, but I've got a final question. Oh, okay. Okay. (laughs) This episode, I'm clearly on a musicals kick (laughs) between My Fair Lady. How much did you love that, though? I'm proud of myself for that. It was lovely. I could have danced lovely. all night. Yes, Brandy, thank you. <laughs> oh, God, you just warmed my heart. <sighs> so 
I'm on this kick between my fair lady and Andy, get your gun. <laughs> so keeping on this theme that I've created, apparently, which character from a musical <laughs> do you think is your spirit animal <laughs> slash most closely resembles you? <laughs> I'm going to make you mad because, oh no. well, you know this about me already. I'm not a big musical person i know i realize that my audience for this is questionable i don't really know musicals so i'm gonna give two answers one is from a musical musical and the other one is from a <laughs> disney musical because i think those okay. should count as musicals yeah it's musical sure so from a musical musical i would say the witch from into the woods who <laughs> i just adored and from a disney musical i will say moana i just oh. loved moana Oh, no, I do love Moana. Mine is from a little musical that I'm sure you've never heard of. It's this little gem of a musical called Strawberry Freckle Face. Wait, was it a book, though? Was that yes. was it based on books? By, okay, so I've heard yes. of the books. Written by Julianne Moore. Not the act, not Julianne Moore. Yeah, the actress. That they turned into a musical. I had no idea. Yes. Whoa. Yes. And I went to audition for this, like, years ago. And oh I sat gosh. in that non-act line for eight hours. And I was like, no, if oh I don't God. get seen for this oh fucking musical. And I never got seen. And I'll, I will always. <gasps> no. I will always be pissed about it. Never yeah. again. Never again. Because now we're equity, Emma. Labor unions. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Let's close out this episode. <laughs> All right, y'all. Thank you so much for listening. We love hearing from you all. We do. Special shout out this episode to Elise Hudson, yes. Gabby's Bookshelf, and Adrian Orozco. Your support means so much to us. Yes. Seriously, we love hearing from you guys. And if you're listening to this and you haven't left us a fabulous five-star review yet, don't wait. Just head over to Apple Podcasts and do it right now. Don't procrastinate. Yeah, do it. Do it. Next week, we'll be reading to the <laughs> end of the book. Stay tuned on our Instagram page at Are These Books Drunk to find out next week's cocktail pairing so that you can read along and sip along with us. Because it's always, always happy, happy hour. hour. Here. Even at 11 a.m. <laughs> Especially at 11 a.m. <laughs> Bye, Brandy. Bye. <laughs>